traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Do you like beer and history and strange and unusual facts? If you don't, I probably can't help you. But I know somebody who can. The history of Germany, Bahamakin, the history of alchemy, and the secret cabinet are all podcasts on the top of my playlist. These podcasts are so well-researched, and Pete and Travis are so genuinely interested. These shows are really education and entertainment combined in the best possible way. Travis isn't afraid to veer off the path of the standard narrative and talk about some of the more offbeat and colorful history that makes listening so much more fun. I'm Steve, and I host and create A2Z History Page Presents the History of the Papacy. My show looks at the history of the Popes of Rome and Christian Church. I like to explore how the office of Pope and the Christian Church in general evolved over the course of centuries and millennia. I try to feature some of the more colorful and unusual aspects of the Christian history story as well. So if you like to step over the ropes and go where the tour normally doesn't go, you can find out more and subscribe at a2zhistorypage.com. Back to Travis. Thanks, Stephen, and I cannot recommend the History of the Papacy podcast enough. Good evening, and welcome to the History of Alchemy podcast. I'm Travis Dow. And I'm Pete Coleman from the Bohemian podcast. Today we're going to talk about an interesting history of science um, theory, let's say, and and also the inventor of that theory. This is um, kind of my, my bread and butter for the show is the actual science part of it. And specifically, we're talking about Johann Joachim Becher and his theory of phlogiston. Now, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Phlogiston, phlogiston, something. It's uh, So phlogiston, it starts with a PH. Um, uh, anyway, so if you want to go Google it or just go to historyofalchemy.com to, to kind of, you know, check what I'm talking about here. In 1669, alchemist Johann Joachim Becher proposed that fire was caused by an element called phlogiston. Basically, anything you could set on fire, he claimed, contained this substance. And the only way to put the fire out, like to put out the potential fire that could happen, was to deflogisticate it, basically, which you do that by burning it all the way down to ash, which obviously this is, you know, comes into alchemy and over and over. Um, this theory was actually around for about a hundred years until Joseph Priestley debunked it by thoroughly really discovering oxygen. We've mentioned that um, Drebbel maybe discovered oxygen and described it and and you know they were actually mentioned in the Royal Society and, and so forth. So there, there was always this notion that oxygen was around and and that sort of thing but it wasn't really clear how things burned and why. And so the simple answer was anything flammable had some element called phlogiston in it. Done. 
Johann Becher was uh, German, of course. He was born in 1635 and survived to 1682. Uh, he was a physician, an alchemist, a scholar, and an adventurer. I like to always have that that behind my name, right? An adventurer. He's a scholar and a gentleman. Yeah, and is best known for his development of the, the phlogiston theory of combustion and his advancement of Austrian cameralism. He was born in Speyer. His father, a Lutheran minister, died while he was a child, leaving a widow and three children. At the age of 13, Becher found himself responsible not only for his own support, but also for that of his mother and brothers. He learned and practiced several small handicrafts and devoted his nights to study of the most miscellaneous descriptions and earned a pittance by teaching. In 1654, at the age of 19, he published an edition of The Tract of the Trismegistus Stone. In 1652, he studied medicine, chemistry, and theology at the University of Mainz and eventually became a doctor of medicine in 1661. And then 1663, took over the faculty of his father-in-law, Ludwig von Hörnig. And there he wrote another work about the reality of the Philosopher's Stone. He entered the Roman Catholic Church and became, in, in 1657, became a professor of theology, and then the same year, professor of medicine at the University of Mainz, and even became the physician to the archbishop elector. He wrote a book on mortality and was published in 1660. And then in the next year, he wrote another book, which gives 10,000 words for use as a universal language, not unlike Esperanto, mm -hmm. right, that came out in the 20th century. Uh, in 1663, he published an, uh, a book called Odium, Chemiculum, which was a book on animals, plants, and minerals. In 1666, he made uh, a Chancellor of Commerce in, at Vienna, where he had gained the powerful support of the Prime Minister of Emperor Leopold I. Sent by the Emperor on a mission to the Netherlands, he wrote there in 10 days his Metho Methodius Dictia. He wrote a few other works in politics and history. In 1669, he published his, his Physica Subterranea, the same year. He was engaged with the Count of Hanu in a scheme to acquire Guiana from the Dutch West India Company. Oh, he seemed to be everywhere, didn't he? Yeah, this is actually really cool. So we're actually getting into the colonial age here, basically. So he, he got the job, basically, of the colony Hanawish Indian in, in South America. It's basically today's Guyana. And so his, his task was to found this new colony. Um, this project obviously had a bunch of financial possibilities through it. And again, if you notice the times, we're talking about the Thirty Years' War, which is kind of weird that we're, you know, I just never made the connection that the Thirty Years' War was definitely in, in the time of, you know, beginning of colonization and that sort of thing. Basically, because of the Thirty Years' War, you know, there was a lot of bankruptcy and, and um, you know, tough financial times for a lot of the, the nobility that were fighting in the war. That led to Johann Becher losing that um, task of ground, founding the colony. So he went to Munich, where through the cost of the Bavarian government, he set up a large alchemical laboratory. Now that's obviously awesome because I was raised in Munich. Um, so there's, there's, you don't hear a lot of alchemical history in Munich, but uh, there, there you have it. So in 1670, he switched to the court of Kaiser Leopold I. And he had a lot of influence on the sort of economics and trade, all sorts of like uh, politics yeah, surrounding the commerce of, of the area. The emperor or the Kaiser set him up as the sort of court counselor and part of the 
commercial college, uh, if you will. And he, and he developed plans for the manufacture and the setup of an Austrian-Indian trade society, not unlike the, the East India Trade Company, or the East India um, Company, but for Austria and India, which, you know, obviously I had no idea about. It's not that, you know, it's not that common knowledge, but it's kind of interesting because at that point, Austria did actually have access to the sea through the Mediterranean. Um, so yeah, it's just kind of neat. 1676, he was in Würzburg and then Harlem for a couple of years, then in London, where he got into all the mining industry of, of in that time and period. In Holland, he had an interesting theory. He wanted to make gold out of the ocean sand, like the beach sand. And this is, again, Henning Brandt um, distilling his urine. Anything that was yellow, I, I, I mentioned that like every, I should stop doing that. But yeah, it's, it's part of that sympathetic magic um, theory where, you know, sand is yellow, so sand must have some of the essence that gold also has because gold, gold is also yellow, right? Um, so that was one of his theories. And in 1678, he was in Hamburg by Heinrich Brandt. So actually, it's good I just mentioned him. There you go. Um, that's probably not a coincidence that they had similar theories, in fact. And now here's the cool thing. Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz, the other guy that invented calculus, uh, not Isaac Newton, stopped him from coming to, ha to Hanover. So this is like, you know, a who's who of the, of the time period. Again, this is, you know, shortly after the Golden Age of Al Alchemy. So we have Leibniz, Leibniz and, and Isaac Newton alive, the Royal Society being founded. Um, or at least the precursor, and all these great names here. And here we also have um, Johann Becher. Meanwhile, he had been appointed as a physician to the elector of Bavaria. And also, in the, a couple years before this, he also had a, a plan to connect the Low Countries, like the Netherlands, with the canal to unite the Rhine and the Danube, which that's a great idea, and those several of those exist now. So he's just kind of, again, we have a, a scholar that was kind of ahead of his time, right? In 1678, he was already in England, and so he had traveled to Scotland where he visited the mines at the request of Prince Rupert. He afterwards went for the same purpose as Cornwall, where he spent a year. At the beginning of 1680, he presented a paper to the Royal Society in which he attempted to deprive Huygens of the honor of applying for pendulum to the measurement of time. So as you can tell, Becher was a very colorful personality in the period of transition from alchemy to modern chemistry, which is right why we have this program. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of the stuff that we talk about with this particular time frame. He examined the nature of the combustion process and assumed that the burning of materials, a terra pinguis, uh, would be released. After all, Becher considers air, water, and earth were all parts of real elementary principles. The earth itself, he divided again into a terra fluida, or a mer mercurial earth, the fabrics bringing liquid, fineness, volatility, and, and metallic properties, a terra pinguis uh, or greasy soil, which corresponds with the oily liquid of the alchemists, the city of substances, sulfurous, as well as bringing flammable properties, and a terra lapidia or a glass-like earth, which stood for the principle of fusibility. The terra fluidia he also called phlogistus. This term itself was not new, it was also from others about uh, Nicholas Nager Hapilius, which was a generation before. And, and, and Daniel Sinert, and ultimately even Aristotle. Here's for the combustible used in this similar meaning, right? So we go back to that concept. In 1669, he saw the formation of the first cup representative of alkalines and ethine, 
uh, by the action of sulfuric acid and ethanol. Yeah, so I mean, like you said, this is, this is so cool to me because here we really have an alchemist that is describing um, chemical experiments, basically. So he's, you know, he's, he's really messing around in the lab and, and um, trying to still get the Philosopher's Stone, but through experimentation, you know, including having contact with the Royal Society and such. So it was basically his model of the earth as, as an element with these three, you know, sub-elements or subcategories, let's say, which then Georg Ernst Stahl, who lived a generation later, um, used for the formation of this kind of um, phlogiston theory. So this might be interesting for the, for the alchemy fans out here is that, so in Vienna, he developed a method for making gold. He basically... And this is actually should sound familiar to you if you've been listening to the show, but by you, by adding some silver and other ingredients um, to the silt of the Vienna basin, he apparently succeeded in transmutating gold. His everlasting sand mine, as he put it, um, but this actually didn't find any financial backers. It was not until 1934. And again, that someone again tried to exploit the gold sands in an industrial scale. So basically what he was saying is that um, through certain mining methods, you could actually take the, the basin in, in the Danube, more or less, and um, you could sift through it to get gold. So again, this, he was right in a way, but this didn't happen until 1934. Now, the, the, the funny thing is, is to our modern ears, we should kind of know that the gold, if you can get gold from the Danube, it's because it's already there. So he didn't realize that. He was still saying, well, look, there's, um, you know, you do certain things to the sand or the silt and you have gold. Um, he saw that as transmutation, which I just think is, is crazy interesting. Um, but in the 20th century, sure enough, there, was, there are trace amounts of gold in the silt of the Danube. And, and it actually, you know, was, was gotten that way. But it's not because of some sympathetic magic. I should point out. And Travis, when we were talking about his bi uh, Becker's biography, we talked about uh, Austrian cameralism. Uh, that, that actually was very interesting to me to see what was going on with that. So we want to kind of get into that a little bit tonight as well. As, as the most original and influential theorist of Austrian cam cameralism, Becker was at the forefront of this. Becker sought to balance between the need to reinstate post-war levels of population and production, both on the countryside and in the towns. Yet, by learning more seriously, uh, more seriously on trade and commerce, Austrian cameralism became a transfer of attention to the troubles of the monarchy's urban economies. Before the death of Ferdinand II had already taken some cor uh, corrective steps by attempting to ease the debts of the Bohemian crown and put limits on some of the land-holding nobility's commercial rights. Remember, at that time, the Austrian-Hungarian Empire had a big control over the Bohemians. Yeah, in fact, so this, I hope this is all coming together now because Ferdinand II was the guy um, who had the 27 noblemen executed. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, that was the beginning of the Thirty Years' War. We've talked about the noblemen that were executed. We talked about the executioner who did it. Um, so this is that time period, and that started the Thirty Years' War. So if this is all gibberish to you, then I would recommend you go to the Bohemian podcast. You can either find it at podcastnick.com, where all my other projects are too. Um, or just go straight to bohemican.com and take a look at, you know, what it meant to, to be an executioner at the time. This is all that time period. So, um, yeah, really, it's not nice to kind of tie it all together in some ways. 
Yeah, that's right, Travis. All this should sound pretty familiar from from several of our podcasts at the time about this. But you know, even though the preceding Habsburgs had held the, the the guilds responsible for their restrictiveness, wastefulness, and the poor value of the merchandise they created, Ferdinand II ramped up the pressure by extending rights to private artisans, who usually then earned the earned the fort, the fortification of powerful local leaders, such as signatures or military commanders, churches, or even universities. An edict by Leopold I in 1689 had granted the government the right to monitor and control the number of masters and cut down on the monopoly effect of the guild operators. So you see a lot of this moving stuff is moving forward. Yeah, yeah so again, you know, this doesn't have so much to do with alchemy per se, but it is really interesting in, in economics. And again, we... I mean, look at Isaac Newton and his role in the mint and his economist theories. So, you know, if you're interested in finding gold one way, then you might also be interested in economics in general. And, and we do see this more than once with alchemists. So basically, um, you know, again, so he's trying to set the, the guilds, make the guilds stricter, make the standards for merchandise stricter, and, and you know, basically the quality higher. And basically, they, they yeah, and, and a, a lot of these sort of reforms came immediately after the Thirty Years' War, where Bohemia, Bohemian towns were just completely wiped out, even. So they, they you know, the, the towns then petitioned to Ferdinand to kind of help them um, at least invest in kind of refineries so they could, they could then refine their own raw materials and have more finished goods for export, um, which, yeah, that's all sound economic theory. Becher, the reason we talk about this is because Becher became the leading force in attempting this sort of these reforms. And in 1666, we have the creation of the, the Commerce Commission in Vienna, the reestablishment of the first post-war silk plantation on the lower Austrian estates of Hofkammer President Zinzendorf. And then we have, you know, he, he helped with the Kunst and Werkhaus, which is the art and manufacture house, basically, in which foreign masters trained non-guild artisans. So, I mean, there's this, if you're interested in German theory, well, first of all, go listen to the History of Germany podcast, which we also do. But yeah, a lot of these things lasted for, for eons, like they're still on today, this whole apprenticeship um, system. I, I was a part of that when I was a kid. I was an apprentice as a hotel manager, for instance. And it's, this, this is actually, this kind of comes back to this. This and other similar reforms in, in Germany proper, let's say. Like one more interesting thing I got to mention here is that there's the Tabor workhouse, which he was involved in, which Tabor, again, go listen to the Hussite Wars episodes and, and um, people worshiping in the nude. And, you know, if that isn't, I mean, if you're not interested, you're not interested. But it, there's some really great shows out there that tie into this, basically. Um, and, and then but just because of the time, the time period we're talking about, there was a lot of unwillingness to, to import from, like, foreign or Protestant teachers and skilled workers. And there's a lot of other things that come into this, which are interesting, but not for this show. So let's get back to it. So the phlogiston theory... The phlogiston theory is an obsolete scientific theory that postulates a fire-like element called phlogiston, contained in the combustible bodies and released during combustion. The name comes from the ancient Greek, meaning burning up from flame, of course, and first stated in 1667 by Becker. The theory attempted to explain burning processes such as combustion and, and rusting, and which are now known collectively as oxidation. Thus, Becker described phlogiston as a process that explained combustion through the process that was opposite to that of oxygen. Joseph Black's student, Daniel Rutherford, discovered nitrogen in 1772, and the pair used the theory to explain his results. 
The residue of the air left after burning, in fact a mixture of nitrogen and carbon dioxide, was sometimes referred to as phlogisticated air, having taken up all of the phlogiston. Conversely, when oxygen was first discovered, it was thought to be dephlogisticated air, capable of combining with more phlogiston and other supporting combustion for longer than ordinary air. Again, the theory kind of makes sense in the way that they put it, but um, yeah, it was obviously uh, debunked pretty thoroughly later. I mean, basically what happened was, so they, you know, and here's really cool, here's the cool part for the history of, of science is because, so they basically had a hypothesis is saying that phlogiston exists and is a thing. And through quantitative experiments, they started to reveal the problems in the theory. Um, so here we really start to see um, after the age of alchemy, where these things started to fall apart because of, you know, the fact that some metals, such as magnesium, gained mass when they burned. So they're not giving, you know, it's just, so there's a different chemical reaction there that does not release air, but actually takes in the carbon dioxide, perhaps. So even though they were supposed to have, you know, lost the phlogiston. So, I mean, of course, then, you know, not everyone's going to give up their theory that easily. So some phlogiston proponents explain this by basically saying that phlogiston had a negative mass, right? So it's actually, yeah. Um, and then other gave the more conventional argument that it was just lighter than air. So um, that it, you know, that it would just kind of raise to the atmosphere and that's why you, you can't detect it in, you know, by itself. But, you know, eventually the experiments did kind of show that, that this all kind of broke down. And you can say it's based on the Archimedean principle that these, like the densities of magnesium and its combustion products show that just being lighter than air wouldn't uh, increase for the mass. So it's, it just doesn't make sense there. And then in the 18th century, it became clear that metals gained mass when they were oxidized. Phlogiston was increasingly regarded as a sort of principle rather than a material substance, so more of a process, let's say. And then by the end of the 19th century, um, there were still a couple of chemists that, that held out on this theory. And for them, they started to link this concept to hydrogen because hydrogen itself is combustible, which, you know, I just, I just find this fascinating that they, you know, some just really wanted to cling to this idea. And then finally, Joseph Priestley, he acknowledged that, you know, iron will gain mass as it sort of uh, rusts, basically. Uh, he, he, ha he says, quote, the basis in, of inflammable air, hydrogen, and this is the substance or principle to which we give the name phlogiston. Based on all these theories, they gave the oxygen the word, uh, basically oxidizing principle is from the ancient Greek oxos, like sharp, and genos, like birth. So it's kind of referring to the oxygen's role in the formation of acids in a way. So, you know, it's like sharp. It gives birth to something sharp. Priestley described phlogiston as the alkaline principle. So phlogiston basically remained the dominant theory until the 1780s, let's say, until we, we have that, you know, uh, Antoine Laurent Lavoisier showed that combustion requires a gas that has mass, namely oxygen, and could be measured by means of weighing closed vessels. So yeah, that's actually kind of a no-brainer. If you think it's, it's lighter than air and rising to the atmosphere, just close the system so that you can test all of the products and the byproducts, not just, you know, the metal that you're rusting or burning. Um, so yeah, so then, yeah, so then once you have a closed vessel, any sort of buoyancy just doesn't matter anymore. You, you're still going to trap all the gases. And these slowly but surely, you know, kind of prove that there is no 
mass paradox that everything kind of makes sense and and you know that the the modern chemical theories or chemistry um, theories that we had actually do make sense and so those started to take over in the mainstream just just one more kind of piece to the puzzle of where you know alchemy kind of lost footing in the history of science and chemistry the, the theories behind chemistry started to really gain traction which is you know the conservation of mass and and all that sort of thing I have I have one note here from Bill Bryson in his a short history of nearly everything. He says, chemistry as an earnest and respectable science is often said to date from 1661 when Robert Boyle of Oxford published The Skeptical Chemist. The first work to dis distinguish between chemists and alchemists, but it was a slow and often erratic transition, which you know we've said many many times. Into the 18th century, scholars could feel oddly comfortable in both camps, which we've been doing our best to point out here on the show. If if we if you know people kind of blame us or or accuse us of having an agenda, if if we have one, it is that that um, alchemy is a part of the history of science, and that a lot of people were comfortable with having one foot in alchemy and one foot in chemistry. And um, so he goes on to say, like the German Johann Becher, who produced who produced sober and unexceptionable work on mineralogy called Physica Subterranea, which you mentioned, but who also was certain that, given the right materials, he could make himself invisible. Yeah. Um, and, you know, not just that, but the Philosopher's Stone and all that stuff. So, um, yeah, I'm really happy I came ac across Joachim Becher, and he is kind of, you know, one of, one of the golden boys of um, the thing that we're trying to get across here is that it, it, it didn't jump from one to the other. There, wa there was no um, sudden convention where everyone said, oh, you're right, uh, Philosopher's Stone is impossible, let's, let's get with the program. On the contrary, so we have very rational men um, still saying, well, let's, let's uh, dredge the Daniel to As we wrap up the show tonight, uh, one, some of the things that we're doing uh, really to expand the listener sort of experience uh, is to, to kind of put something, an umbrella sort of website together that you can go to to kind of see all the works that Travis and I do uh, through the course of all our different programs from the, the, uh, from the History of Germany podcast, the Bohemian podcast, the History of Alchemy podcast, the, C the Secret Cabinet podcast. Uh, there's so much that we're, we're doing right now, including venturing into YouTube. One good place to kind of go to all these things is called podcastnik.com. That's podcastnik.com. That's going to have uh, the connections to, you ha we, uh, to all the things that we're doing right now. So if you want to remember that, uh, that's probably a good thing to kind of bookmark. You can go to um, all our uh, links to all our audio podcasts, our YouTube um, uh, foray that we've got going on to right now. We've got a lot of... Uh, other things, uh, uh, the book concepts we're putting together, there's a lot of things that are going to be on there that you can take a look at and take part in to better enjoy our shows. We really enjoyed this, this episode, and I hope you did too. Thank you very much. Thanks. Take care.